Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're at the Forum at the Harvard School of Public Health. We have a great studio audience here. I'm Roz Krasny. I'm the uh, Boston Bureau Chief for Reuters News here in Boston, obviously, and I'm going to be your moderator today. Uh, this event is being held in collaboration with Reuters, and uh, we're expecting to have a great discussion. Uh, at the moment, we have a live blog going on at Reuters.com, and we also have an online audience from around the United States and, we hope, around the world at uh, forumhsps.org. <clears throat> Our topic today is the super committee collapse and America's healthcare future. It couldn't be a more timely or important topic. Uh, we we're gonna look at the impact on providers, households, and how this might impact the 2012 presidential and congressional elections. Um, we're a month, about a month now after the failure of the super committee and we're looking forward perhaps to seeing automatic spending cuts kick in in 2013 that may or may not happen and that's something that our panelists are going to discuss here today. Uh, we also found out yesterday that we have a Paul Ryan 2.0 uh, healthcare plan that's been uh, floated in Washington so that is something that's very timely and topical as well. Our format is that we'll start with a panel discussion. I'll ask each of my four distinguished panelists to, to say a few words or speak for a few minutes, and then we'll go to, to questions. We'll take questions from the audience. We'll take questions from online. So think about some great and insightful questions that you can, can ask our, our distinguished panelists. Uh, so now I'd like to introduce uh, my panelists. And to my left here is one who perhaps doesn't need any introduction. He's a veteran of the forum at uh, the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, he's done several of these panels. He's uh, Dr. Robert Blendon, Professor of Health Policy at Harvard School of Public Health and Executive Director of the Harvard Opinion Research Program. So welcome to you, Bob. And uh, going along the line, uh, we have Dr. David Cutler. He's a Professor of Applied Economics at Harvard. And he has involvement with uh, health policy research and health reform, pretty much going back to when he was almost in short pants. Um, uh, back in the 1990s, he worked with Hillary Clinton on, on health care reform efforts there. He's worked uh, with, with the Obama administration on health care reform, and he truly is a, a, a fountain of knowledge. And uh, going along the line further, we have Dr. Gail Walensky, who is a a healthcare guru of, of decades standing. She's a former uh, director of Medicare and Medicaid under the George H.W. Bush administration. And uh, Dr. Walensky, an economist by training, is now a fellow of Project Hope, uh, an international healthcare foundation. And last but certainly not least, to my right, uh, virtually, um, is John Rother. He is president and chief executive of national, the National Coalition on Healthcare, which is a health policy group based in Washington, where he's joining us from today. And uh, you probably know John from his many, many years with AARP. He, uh, he ran their policy division and uh, was really their public face on policy issues. So that's our four panelists, and uh, now I'd like to get started by asking uh, each to uh, give us some brief remarks, starting with Bob. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, what I'd like to do is give you a very quick perspective from the average citizen point of view. 
Uh, most Americans now believe that the deficit and the debt uh, basically are slowing down our economic recovery. If you're looking at polls, it's identical to Europe today. But where there is a big difference is if you give average Americans a list of how to solve this problem like that, they go somewhere that none of the experts and anybody in Washington go. It's like you're in a different country. So what's at the top of their list? They think the United States should have a smaller footprint overseas for a number of years. They're not becoming isolationist. I think the word you would use is a pause in what we spend overseas. A second, you can take the one or five percent. They want the top one or five percent to pay higher taxes. There's such an agreement on this that's quite incredible. Uh, thirdly, they actually think there's a lot of grant programs going on in Washington that could disappear for a few years and the country would go on. That's where they are. On their list that's that long, at the bottom, at the bottom, I mean, all the way at the bottom is something called Medicare and Social Security. For the average person in this country at the moment, starting with Medicare is like you have a financial problem at home and the first suggestion is to sell the family car. Why would you do that is what people are saying. Okay, and you say to them, okay, stop. You have to solve the Medicare problem. So you give them a long list of things to do in Medicare, and we're going to discuss this. At the top, it starts out with asking upper-income people to pay more, and then pay some providers less, and don't forget pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and uh, experts may not agree with this. They actually think malpractice costs drive this issue, and can't you do something about this and slow this? At the bottom, at the bottom, it's so you need small glasses to really read this, is cut everybody's benefits. Make sure mom has less next year, or let's all pay a lot more when we retire for Medicare. And thirdly, let's overhaul the thing. So it just is a completely different world out there in Medicare. That particularly scares people over the age of 50. So uh, this is where we are. And then in between are a few items. And there are two I just want to mention, and then I'll give you the electoral implications. Uh, so one is people are split about whether or not we should raise the retirement age. And to no surprise, the closer I am to getting over this, the more enthusiastic I am for you to retire later. Uh, uh, for that, and the more that I have 34 years to work, it's a less exciting policy uh, option. But the one which is really have huge political significance and just changed yesterday. Uh, for most Americans who did not take any of our courses, the idea, and I'm trying to be politically neutral, of how giving a credit you would choose among private plans is very hard to understand. And what scared particularly people who are age 50 is that Medicare as they know it would disappear. Yesterday there was some bipartisan proposal which said that you could have a tax uh, some sort of a choice, uh, some sort of credit, and Medicare would still be there. Now, for policy, there's a whole series of questions. But for average people, that's actually going to relax them a lot about this discussion. So Medicare isn't disappearing. So these two options are still in the middle. We know where they are. But where they absolutely don't want to go is no benefit cuts, don't ask everybody to pay a lot more, and don't have Medicare disappear. <laughs> Now let me just briefly deal with the election and quit. For those of you who are poll watchers, uh, the desire to throw out the existing Congress is the highest ever since we have measured it. Uh, across this country on a bipartisan basis, everybody wants to toss them out and get another job. 
So we are going to have an election filled with anger and tossing out. I don't know what that is exactly, who's going to win on the toss out. But there are two things to know about why people want to toss them out. One is, except for the people in Congress, Americans are quite pragmatic. They like deals. They cannot understand on TV why you don't grab everybody's hand and say, we have a deal and go home. And if you can't, after another year of doing this, they want to throw out the people who are there. Uh, secondly, they don't understand the priorities of the people in Congress. And no disrespect to experts, they would have started somewhere else to fix the federal budget. So the two are going to make this issue hugely important in the election. We don't know how it's going to play, but there is an anger out there that somehow the political system's not working. It should take a stop uh, and figure out another way to go. Fantastic. David. Um, well, thank you very much for having me here. I guess um, I want to start off by giving you a little bit of the green eye shades, just so that you can contrast it with what Bob was saying people think about. So the green eye shade is that we have a structural problem in the budget. Now in the short run, the economy is doing poorly and we need to be spending more and we need to, to, to um, probably increase government spending or reduce taxes. Over the longer term, we have a problem, and I'll just illustrate the size of the problem, which is that over the next, oh, roughly quarter century, government's revenue is about, supposed to be about 20% of the economy, and government spending is about 25% of the economy. And you just kind of can't spend 25% and take in 20% and expect to have anything reasonable there. Now, 5% is actually quite a lot. That is, this is not a sort of trivial issue. So if you wanted to solve that, you'd be talking about raising the tax, by taxes, you'd be talking about raising the tax burden by um, a quarter permanently right away. We're not going to do that, but it's, it illustrates the magnitude of the issue. Uh, just coincidentally, the increase in medical spending as a share of GDP is about 5%. So roughly, if healthcare didn't increase as a share of the economy, we wouldn't have, uh, if government health care programs didn't increase as a share of the economy, we wouldn't have a deficit problem, um, a long-run deficit problem. So that's a sort of first point about why it's important. But, so, so that's point one. But point two is, I don't want to actually overstate the role of Medicare. So we, we, in essence, have a flat tire because air is leaking out on the health care side. That doesn't mean that the way to inflate the tire is to put the air back in where the hole is. Sometimes it's better to put the air back in somewhere else. So yes, healthcare has to be on the table, whether people want it on the table in the way we think they should have it on the table or not. But it's got to be part of a bigger discussion, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. The 20% of GDP that we take in taxes is far lower than virtually every other developed country. Defense spending is far higher than most estimates of what we need. People are retiring, many people are retiring at far younger ages than their health would allow them to do. So there are a variety of different ways we should think about it. And just because the biggest problem in, is in health, that doesn't mean that we should necessarily think that the only solutions are going to come from health. And just to come back to that, there's no distinction economically between saying people who earned more over their lifetime pay more for their Medicare premium versus people who earned more over their lifetime 
pay a higher tax rate into the Medicare system. Those two are absolutely identical in all substantive purposes, yet one is a tax and you can't do it, and the other is a programmatic change and you can. I have no idea which one's easier or not, but just as we think about it, we need to have a broader discussion. But so that much said, and let me then turn to the last point I want to make, which is how to think about healthcare. The sort of bad news is that that 5% increase in healthcare is even with fairly draconian changes in healthcare spending, particularly in the next decade that have been enacted. So in the next decade, it is estimated that on a per person basis, Medicare spending will not increase any more rapidly than the economy, actually a little bit lower. What's going on in the next decade is the population of seniors is growing so rapidly. 10,000 people a day are turning age 65, the baby boomers are now retiring, and they use medical care, and that medical care is expensive. So, it's not, so our usual ways of dealing with this, which is to just say, look, we want to take the per-beneficiary growth and make that slow down and stuff like that, is not going to cut it. What you're going to have to get into is not reducing the increases, but how do you think about the level of spending? And the thing we know that is hopeful for this, the thing that we as health policy people know is that probably about a third of medical spending, all medical spending, is going for services that aren't contributing to improved health, that are not contributing. Hospital readmissions when they're easily preventable, tens of billions of dollars a year. People are having acute illnesses where they don't need to be tens of billions of dollars a year. Administrative costs that are far greater than they need to be tens of billions of dollars a year. So you add it all up and that's huge. And the real issue for healthcare is going to be how do we get rid of the wasted part? And here is where to me the biggest cleavage is between proposals and the way that I think about all proposals in light of this. Is what the proposal is doing just shifting costs from the government's budget to someone else's budget and saying, look, the government's poor, you seniors go pick it up, in which case you're leaving that waste baked into the system. Maybe you're solving the, budget, the government's budget problem, but you're not doing anything fundamental. Or is what you're doing fundamental to try and get at that one-third of spending that's not doing anyone any good, and you're really trying to bring down that level in some coherent way? Those are the proposals that we, have to, that we have to really think about and really, really try and put in place. It's going to be a key part. Other things are going to be important too, but that's to me where the, where the crux is. Get rid of the wasteful stuff. Do some of the other things and you'll wind up being fine. Gail. I'm gonna mostly talk about the effect of the reduction in spending that we're anticipating uh, as it will affect providers of care. But before I start that, I wanted to have a couple of uh, reactions to the comments that we've heard. Um, the disparity between revenues and expenditures is clearly not one that we can sustain. Um, in that context, while uh, our defense spending may be higher than other countries, it is historically quite low about 4% of our GDP, uh, and it is already scheduled for reductions uh, going forward. So we will need to make some decisions about what role do we in the United States feel we should play, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis many countries that can't play a role because they have effectively designed a defense budget 
that doesn't allow them to play a role. That's a, clearly a policy choice. Um, second observation is 20% revenue is a lot closer to our historical numbers than 25% spending. So I think we need to reduce that gap. I think, well, it's not even a think. We do need to reduce that gap. Uh, but we're going to need to look at both ends because the 20% is much closer to where we've been and the 25% is much more unusual. That doesn't mean that we should stay at 20. It just means 25% is, is quite an unusual. The other observation that I have for what uh, most, almost all of what uh, both David and Bob said, I agree with, they're factually uh, correct. They're both experts in their areas. But when you think about getting more money, I, I'm a little troubled by the notion that it doesn't really matter how you take in that revenue. Um, right now, when most people talk about increasing revenue, it's higher tax rates on the rich. But there are consequences to increasing tax rates. You decide how serious they are when they kick in. You can also increase revenue by broadening the base. That used to be what we meant when we talked about tax reform, having more revenue come in, but not increasing tax rates, because there are worries about what happens when you increase tax rates. And that goes to this issue. Um, in terms of the behavior of people, it may well impact uh, whether you do it by increasing tax revenue uh, or by um, making the benefits smaller for higher income people, they may react differently. So financially, it may look the same, but in terms of the behavioral effect, it may not look the same, and we're going to have to deal with all this. Now, what happens to physicians and hospitals and other providers of health care? Well, you can look at it that where we're heading now is probably the best they could have possibly hoped for, given the other options. Now, they may not see it that way, but let me explain why I say that. Congress was directed to find $1.2 trillion, even for somebody that ran Medicare, when you start talking the <laughs> trillion word rather than the billion word, this is some serious amount of money. <laughs> half of it will come out of defense if it goes through, half of it out of non-defense. But actually, health care is quite spared. Medicaid is not on the table. The Children's Health Insurance Program is not on the table. And reductions in Medicare are limited to reductions of 2% across the board, undifferentiated. That's the nature of this kind of a change. That's probably better than physicians, hospitals, home care, nursing home, all the rest could have possibly expected had the Congress actually come up with some legislation to deliver the savings. So while you're OK to worry, it's like most of the other alternatives would have been worse. You can decide how to frame that. Second thing is, this is not something that we can look at in isolation. So the 2% reduction is going to come on top of all of the changes that were part of the Affordable Care Act. As David has already said, Medicare was hit quite hard when the Affordable Care Act was passed to be a major funder of the expansion in insurance coverage. That's good news and bad news. There's some question about whether it's ever going to actually take effect because of concerns about what will happen to access if Medicare reimbursements, which are mainly going to be the uh, parts affected, uh, start to look like or less than Medicaid. Will that actually happen? Um, 
and what that means is the 2% has to be considered on top of already the scheduled reductions in payments that will come. So 2% here is quite small. 2% on top of the other changes is less small. And for the, for the poor physicians who are sitting there, once again, sort of Damocles over their head of, will there be a 27% reduction in the fee schedule come January 1st? I keep saying, no, of course that can't happen. You can't go into an election year and reduce fees <laughs> if for nothing else. And there's no question it would have a dramatic effect on the access to care for seniors. But this is getting pretty close already. And it is probably having a negative effect just in terms of jaundicing the views of physicians about participating with Medicare because this happens so often. It's so unfair to have this kind of potential reduction out there. And it feeds into the concern that is looking more real than it used to, that it's not just physicians and hospitals that are going to be impacted. It's the seniors who rely on the physicians mm -hmm. and hospitals awesome. that are going to be impacted, especially in primary care, because that's where we have shortages, and especially for new seniors, because most physicians that accept any Medicare continue their patients, I was going to say older patients, it's really their, form, their, their patients that have been in their practice. The people who we're hearing have trouble are people who just start on Medicare, and especially if they move their location. So new to Medicare, no ties to the physicians in the community, that's already beginning to look like it is having more difficulty than historically. We've heard physicians for years say, I'm going to stop taking Medicare. But actually, the evidence is only in a few areas, mostly where there are either shortages in general or there are physicians who can ignore this very large payer, mm -hmm. does it happen? It's sounding like now it's a little more common. Were the 27% going to? occur, it clearly would be a major problem. What that means is that you can think about the changes in terms of how it affects providers of care, but the real question is how does it affect the users of that care? John's going to talk about that, but we need to remember even if the first instance is on the provider of care, that doesn't guarantee in any way that the users don't get impacted. The real problem is we've got to figure out a better way to reimburse hospitals and physicians and home care providers and get seniors more involved. Uh, the concern I have with what we've done in the Affordable Care Act is it takes the same dysfunctional financial incentives and just reduces the payment across the board. We've got to learn how to do it smarter. David talked about all what we think is the less productive use of health care. Not so easy to know beforehand. But even that aside, we're not going to be able to capture it if we don't fundamentally change how physicians and hospitals are organized, work together, and how they get reimbursed by Medicare and other payers. Oh, it's a huge problem. Now I'd like to turn to John on our video feed and just sort of ask him what he's been hearing from his old AARP friends and, and others just about how, how this is all playing out um, on the ground. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you. and. Uh, I'm uh, uh, honored to be following Bob and David and Gail. Um, so let me just uh, take a second to have a preliminary comment. 
about the title of this session because it wasn't just the super committee's collapse. It was the entire Congress over two years that's been failing to deal constructively with our health care problem, in part because the issue has now gotten so politicized that uh, neither side can make any progress. So I think we've got to think uh, more broadly, uh, not just about the super committee, not just about the federal budget, but about uh, health care policy across the board. And that's the second point, which is that the problem here that needs to be solved is system-wide. Uh, health care costs are actually rising more rapidly in the private sector than they are in Medicare right now. Uh, of course, Medicare does have a demographic challenge with the retirement of the boomer generation. And uh, in the longer term, Medicare's enrollment will almost double. So we can't solve it all with efficiency changes, but there's certainly lots of opportunities uh, to attack the waste, to attack the cost drivers. Um, and, you know, I think if we can do it on a system-wide basis, um, we can actually do it with a minimal impact or minimal harm to beneficiaries. But that's an open question. We don't know if the uh, tools that we have available in the Affordable Care Act will still be available after the Supreme Court decision. And we still don't know, uh, of course, who is going to be elected in the fall. And that will make all the difference in how uh, this issue gets addressed. So um, I guess my basic um, thesis here in terms of impact on the ground is that, uh, yes, we are talking about patients and providers, although uh, I would like to see uh, us get away from across-the-board kinds of things and start thinking more clearly about what kinds of patients need extra help, what kinds of providers do we need more of and which fewer of, uh, rather than across-the-board kinds of formulas. But really, this, I think, is uh, a small part of the impact because healthcare today is a huge part of the economy. Changes in healthcare not only affect patients and providers, they affect payers, businesses, they affect states and state budgets, they affect uh, individuals uh, regardless of age. And so I think we're really dealing with an economic challenge. Healthcare today is the Pac-Man that eats up all available resources that's making it tough for us to invest in education, infrastructure, other important things. So I, I think uh, if we look at this in a broader perspective, everyone's at risk and everyone could be affected if we don't do it the right way. If we do do it the right way, then I think we have the possibility of a more efficient, more effective healthcare system uh, like uh, some other countries have, like parts of this country have, uh, that could actually help us move forward in a stronger economy. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I would just like to kind of t ask a question about yesterday's um, Paul Ryan, Ron Wyden plan that uh, sort of came out of the blue. It was a... Uh, a bit of a paradigm shift for Paul Ryan versus his very unpopular, um, mostly unpopular plan uh, introduced in the spring and voted on by House Republicans. What's behind the new Ryan-Wyden plan and, and where do you, how do you see it shaping the debate over the next year? Bob? Uh, let me just deal briefly with the politics simply. If you don't follow this, uh, uh, seniors actually have been moving back and forth between the two parties. 
But in uh, 208 and 210, they've been overwhelmingly voting Republican. It turns out that there are only a couple issues that really worry this generation of seniors, and that's somebody who's going to sort of end Medicare or Social Security as they know it. And the Ryan proposal among older Americans was seen exactly as that. What yesterday sends a signal is that Republicans who have been such a beneficiary in the last two elections of older people's support and still are in polls, uh, worried enough to move over uh, and say that we're no longer having a debate about ending Medicare for some the next generation and having something else. We're going to have Medicare and choice. And though for my colleagues who've been involved with this, uh, the, their plan will sound different than Medicare choice. But for people I survey, it's not going to sound uh, a, a lot different. Uh, so uh, this is really important. For, for politics, if you are a Democrat, you will have trouble understanding why a Democrat <laughs> proposed that yesterday. Uh, this turns out this issue of having a battle with Congressman Ryan has been amazingly effective in a number of special election races of just saying, you want to end it, I don't. As a result of yesterday, that's gone. Uh, so now we're going to have a much more sophisticated policy point of view. So a lot of us know why Congressman Ryan moved. It isn't fully clear why anyone on the other side moved, not for after the election when this whole discussion really should open up again, but why you would move before the election. But I don't agree with the characterization that it is a paradigm shift for mm -hmm. Paul Ryan. I do agree completely with what Bob Blended just said. Um, and the reason I say that uh, is that uh, while it is an important difference to say among the choices will be Medicare, but on a financially comparable basis to the private sector choices, and that you set the subsidy using the second lowest premium, which uh, had not been uh, the case uh, previously. They're important changes. But if you actually pay any attention to what Paul Ryan was saying initially, he made it much harder on himself than he needed to because he was going to allow all existing seniors, 43, 44 million people on the program now, to continue indefinitely, and all of the people who are going to age into the program in the next 10 years to be able to be a part of traditional Medicare. So it was never clear to me why he didn't just say, well, we're going to have millions and millions of people on traditional Medicare Anyway, why not give the people who are under 55 that option on a financially comparable basis? So to my mind, actually what happened yesterday, but I completely uh, support the notion of uh, why politically is a, a whole question, but it made his program more sensible, easier to defend. Whether it will in any way have a beneficial spillover of saying, even in this most partisan of periods, 2011 going into 2012, we can still see some attempts to do things in a bipartisan way, and we ought to embrace the positive that that presents. We'll have to wait and see. Um, for somebody who served in a Republican uh, administration, um, Ron Wyden takes on a, a new position uh, for 2012. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like for the House Republicans who supported his original plan that they've been thrown under the bus by this? Not or? in the least. No. In the first place, 
Uh, I don't know that many of the Republicans who were supporting them uh, are longtime devotees of Medicare uh, and the uh, policies associated with Medicare. They were very concerned about the um, uh, budget implications, and they were following Paul Ryan's lead uh, as the head of the Budget Committee. Um, the fact that the issues of uh, ending an open-ended entitlement, which of course happened with the Affordable Care Act anyway, that hasn't gotten as much um, attention because of the spending limits that will now exist going forward. Um, there were the issues for those people ought to be that making this kind of a shift in Medicare but being uh, more focused on the policy shows that you can continue in this direction. Mm -hmm. It's actually more support for some aspects of Paul Ryan in a broader context mm -hmm. and premium support uh, than was clear. It, it was not really what he was proposing last year. This is a much more nuanced uh, in policy, but for the politics, those nuances are not going to show up. And that's why uh, for Republicans, uh, they just had a significant gift uh, given to them. Definitely, I think so. John, what, what do you think? And, and, what, are you, and what are you hearing? Well, I think it was on... Go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question, but let me comment on uh, Ryan and uh, Wyden. I think that uh, it's what's interesting to me is you've got this big structural proposal with no budget savings attached. Uh, so why go through it unless you're going to save some money? Uh, or is there another reason to go through it that's quite separate from uh, concern about the budget? Uh, I, I think that's an interesting question. I certainly don't have an answer for it at this point. Well, they, I mean, if it is, it is a different way to enforce GDP plus one, that mm -hmm. is the economy plus one, as a growth that, of course, we've never seen in Medicare for any period of time. Uh, and definitely it is saying that complete reliance on traditional Medicare and enforcing the spending by focusing on reductions to provider reimbursement, which is what the world that we're in right now, can be offset by having a wide range, a wider range of private sector choices where they don't have to get the same kind of legislative permission from the Congress to have different kind of delivery systems. And there was, at least as I read it quickly, a fallback to the GDP plus one uh, if, in fact, the second lowest premium doesn't give you that kind of spending. So it is saying, can you, if you allow other ways of providing health care, mm -hmm. do exactly the kind of things that David said before in terms of trying to get at wasteful spending mm -hmm. by reorganize, reorganizing what has been very traditional a la carte fee-for-service delivery in Medicare, unlike most of the rest of the country? Mm -hmm. Whether you can or not, of course, is an open question. David. I just want to pick up on a little bit of the policy issues both that Gail and John were bringing up. And that has to do with ways of thinking about trying to eliminate the services that are not particularly valuable. Um, and you can do it a few ways. One way which we know doesn't eliminate them but just saves you money is just lowering the fees. And Gail and I and most experts are in complete agreement that that's, you, you just can't keep doing that. 
And there are two other ways that people speak about. One is what you think of as the demand side or the patient side, which says gives the patient a lot of responsibility for what he or she chooses, whether it's choosing an insurance plan or choosing a particular medical care provider, and then let them go at it with a lot of price incentives. And that's the philosophy behind what the premium support proposal says. And the second way is to say, pay differently, get rid of the mesh of stuff which is basically associated with do more and we'll pay you more, and instead say do better and we'll pay you more, do better and we'll make it worth your while, and then, and um, that will be, and that, and that, that will be the, the, the way to, to get rid of it. Um, in sort of official budget scoring, when you go to the Congressional Budget Office and you ask them about either of those two, they will tell you that there's no evidence that either of those two works, so therefore you get zero for it. Mm -hmm. So they will give a zero score to this. Gail probably believes they'll be inappropriately low. They gave a zero score to everything in the Affordable Care Act that was designed to change the way that was paid to uh, doctors and hospitals and all medical care providers. I thought they were inappropriately low. Um, of course, the right thing to do is to figure out how to balance them. That is, it's not all one or it's not all the, the other. Uh, what, what hopefully what this will do is, it, on the policy, and forget about the politics because it's very clear where the politics are, I think, but hopefully what this does on the policy end is it starts to make a little bit of peace um, and it's sort of, and maybe if you get to open that up, you can open up other things about changes in Medicare and private insurance and Medicaid, and that you can really try to push policies that do better rather than, you know, what you saw in the Affordable Care Act. Oh, this is a death panel. Oh, this is going to kill grandma, you know, throwing mom from the train. Mm -hmm. You know, all of that. Ho hopefully, this will be a way into that. If it is, we didn't invent that. Case worried about that. <laughs> I thought it was you. You know, I always wanted. I always wanted to be on those death panels. I thought that was my ideal. That that was what I could most. Tenured professors so, only. <laughs> so, so hopefully, it'll be an entree into doing something rather than just a one-off. It's my way or the highway, which is kind of what we've what what the first versions of these proposals were. The reason it's so important, what David just said is if we can't be able to look at these alternative ways of delivering care, it means the only way Congress can ever be recognized as reducing spending is by reducing how much we pay providers. I don't know whether that was clear. I understood it when he said that. But in case the listeners in the audience didn't understand, we've got to fix this very narrow-minded way of viewing alternative delivery systems to recognize the potential for savings, which we see in the Geisingers and the Kaisers and the Intermountain Healthcare, because otherwise it says whacking away at physician reimbursements, whacking away at hospitals, reducing payments to nursing homes. That's the only thing Congress will get credit for, and so that's what they'll do. We know, David and I certainly are in complete agreement, this is not our future if we want to do well by our seniors. There's got to be a better way. Well, at this point, I'd like to open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, and uh, my colleague here, Robin Herman, has a microphone. And I will just ask that you identify yourself when you ask your question. 
Thank you. Meredith Rosenthal from the Department of Health Policy and Management here. So I'd like to pick up on the, the most recent piece of the discussion. As I look at what Congress's options are, I, I think all of us agree that fundamental payment and delivery system reform is critical to the long-run success of Medicare cost control in a value-based way. Uh, but is there something that Congress could do to accelerate those savings? Even in the best-case scenario, implementing those payment and delivery reforms is going to take a timeline that's not quite in keeping with where the, the current economic needs are. What could Congress do this year to really accelerate some of the gains from delivery system reform? Let me take a, a start at it, and I'm sure others will chime in. One thing I should note before saying it is that, of course, a lot of the research that people use is Dr. Rosenthal's research. So I suppose we could be asking you the question about <laughs> what, what could Congress do. Uh, uh, but I will give the answer that I think you would give <laughs> if, 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 if you were up here in, in, in my place. Um, I think that the, what the Affordable Care Act did was a start. It was a very good start, but it was a kind of unfinished agenda. And the reason why it was unfinished is because um, they couldn't push it much farther without offending folks, although now they're more offended because the budget and the deficit came up in the interim. Um, the Republicans were screaming about death panels, and there's only so far you can go in that circumstance. So the Affordable Care Act has, I mean, we should also ask John McDonough is here and wrote significant parts of the law. It has we should experiment with X, and if X turns out to be valuable, then we'll speed along the enactment of X. And what we probably ought to have said or ought to say now is, no, we're committing to do X within five years. You folks, you not meaning CMS, but you folks in the world, together with CMS and private insurers, go figure out how to do it. But we're just telling you that this is going to happen within a period of time, which is, in fact, how we did the perspective payment and how we did the RBRVS. We didn't wait to, in fact, in one notable case, we actually enacted it while the demonstration program was going on mm. to see whether it worked. We just got sick and tired of waiting for it. We just did it. So so we can do it. In fact, the, the, the wonderful thing, if there is any wonderful thing to the 27% pay cut that's hanging over doctors' heads is that they're desperate for a way out for some sense of security about it. And so that's really what you do is you say, look, you know that we, we can kick this can down the road. We can't ultimately stop it. But here's what we can do. We can set up a different kind of system in which you can do well by doing better by your patients and better by our dollars. And we are going to do that. And we are going to agree not to kill each other, announcing that we're going to kill our grandparents by doing that. Let me, uh, the, the part I'm uh, most disappointed with with where we are right now is that there isn't more directed change precisely about how to pay physicians. If you look at the pilots that are there, they allow for changes in how we pay physicians, but they don't put it at the top of the list. They don't even demand it at the bottom of the list. And if you look at the four different models, that the Innovation Center just released, it is very hospital-centric. So the money can go to the hospitals and the physicians. The money can go to the hospitals and the post-acute care, the nursing homes in the home care. Maybe those are good models, we'll see. What it doesn't recognize is we absolutely have to change how we pay physicians. We can't pay physicians 
by having them bill for 8,000 different codes and have them held in any way accountable or responsible or reward those who practice in a conservative way and have good clinical outcomes. And that having demonstrations or pilots or other ways to pay physicians, to my mind, ought to have been required pilots. I mean, it ought to have been uh, half a decade ago, uh, but it certainly ought to have been number one, two, and three, no choices. And then do all these other things too because they're good ideas as well. Um, so the first thing is to say, let's focus what we're not doing now. Nothing to incentivize multi-specialty group practices, which seems to me to have lots of evidence as a good way to go. Uh, a lot of empowering of hospitals going on, both by what's permitted uh, and by what's occurring naturally. Might want to just give some question as to whether that's the only direction uh, that we want to see. Uh, and I, I would have liked to have seen triggers in the pilots, what the law allows is for the secretary to uh, upscale a pilot that is having promising results, uh, even to the point of uh, doing it for all of Medicare. Now, I am positive there will be many core challenges as to whether or not uh, this is in fact consistent with the um, uh, Procedures Act, whether there has to be rulemaking and not just guidance and all these other niceties. Um, but I would have liked to have seen a trigger that says, if the pilot increases quality and reduces spending, it's part of Medicare. Or I actually have uh, re the relative value scale was adopted into law when it was half done. Some might say half baked, certainly not finished. <laughs> Even in principle, uh, I got the assignment of it will be in place January 1st, 1992 when it was passed uh, in November of 1989, it's not our problem that there doesn't exist a full-blown relative value scale. So what David is suggesting, directed to CMS or directed to HHS or directed to whoever it is you want, there will be a new way of paying physicians that bundles payment uh, that is not based on seven or 8,000 codes and it will go into effect in 2015, 2016, or however you want to do it is not without precedent and would force a level of activity, I don't see happening right now. And I'm disappointed what I see because it is so hospital-centric. Um, and what I worry about the most is the most broken part of Medicare, which is how we pay physicians, is falling to the bottom. And while physicians don't account for that much money in the healthcare dollar, 19, 20%, they drive so much of what goes on in healthcare. And if you don't pay physicians right, rewarding the kind of behavior you want to see, how can you try to drive the kind of change in delivery that we all think we can have? Good question. Do we have another question from the audience? At the back there? I'm Amy Goldstein. I'm a fellow this year at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. And in normal times, I'm the national social policy writer for the Washington Post. And uh, the um, uh, Ryan Wyden plan is in the news this week, in part, as Bob, you were saying, because of its political novelty. But the underlying premise of converting uh, Medicare from a defined benefit program, an entitlement program, to a defined, uh, uh, I mean, a defined uh, benefit program to a defined contribution program, has a long history of de debate, but it's never quite happened. It was also debated by the super committee. And I'm curious whether uh, you on the panel think that the uh, that some permutation of this idea. Um, can both save enough money to be worthwhile and at the same time ensure older Americans uh, affordability of the care that they need. 
I think you can argue uh, that it did happen. It just hasn't been recognized by limiting the growth in spending to GDP plus one. That is already part of the law, and it took what has traditionally been an open-ended entitlement, what that means, what those fancy words mean, is Medicare spends what Medicare spends. The benefits are uh, in law. People go and interact with the healthcare system, and then you count at the end of the year what Medicare spends. That actually is not going to occur in the future. Now, I'm a premium support devotee. There are people on both the Republican and the Democratic side who are. There are many people who are on both the Republican and Democratic side who want nothing to do with the concept. It is a somewhat different structure. I don't think there's very much recognition that the open-ended entitlement part of Medicare is already part of law, either to be achieved by this independent payment advisory board or to be achieved by an alternative set of offerings, now traditional Medicare and other offerings. But open-ended entitlement as we've known it, it's gone. Now, I don't, maybe that's my jaundiced way of looking at it, so I'd be glad to hear from, uh, from Bob or, or no, David sure. or whoever, no, or no, John. It's just interesting. I just want to follow up on that for a second. You know, if you think about health costs, so they may be high, they may be low. And there are really three parties to the transaction. There's the government, there's the payer, the, the, the provider, and there's the beneficiary. And so one of those three has to bear the risk for what happens if costs are higher than you think what happens if they're low. Traditionally, we've borne it through the government. And if you thought about sort of economic first principles, you'd say that's probably best because the government can either raise taxes if it wants or borrow if it wants or whatever, and the government's sort of the biggest person in this, so it can bear the risk. And what we're kind of saying now is, no, we don't want government to bear that risk anymore. We want to commit to certainty on the part of um, public sector spending. And so there are only two places you can push the risk then. You can push it onto the beneficiaries, and that's what you do with the sort of private plans. You say, look, we're going to provide you, in essence, a defined contribution, and it's going to grow at GDP plus one. And if actual costs are above that, tough luck, you bear that. Or you can do it on the provider. And you can say, no, we're going to have... Or both. Right. We're, we're going to have costs grow at GDP plus one. And if they're going to grow more rapidly than that, then we'll put up this commission, which will decide which things to do. And it'll do something. And that, and, and that's, or you can do some combination. And, and, and that, that's sort of what, you're, what, 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 what we're kind of playing with. And I suppose people would have different views. You know, on the one hand, if you stick it all on the providers, you're saying, oh, my god, you know, look, are, what, are you going to put them out of business? And if you stick it all on the beneficiaries, you say, look, are we, am I going to make it life be impossible for beneficiaries, particularly low-income beneficiaries? And if you put it on the government, you've then got the government sort of bearing some. So I mean, I have views about what, where I think it ought to go and all of that. But it's just sort of it's an interesting economic problem about what you do with that fundamental risk. But we have changed. I mean, and it's important. It's nice to see you again, Amy. But it's important that people understand is we don't have an open-ended entitlement in the future. And you can say you can do it through uh, the pressure on the providers and you can do it through uh, pressure on seniors, or you can let them choose, uh, which is why I like the premium. It's like, you know, I know what I think I would like, but I'm not sure that I'm the person to choose what you ought to have or somebody else in the room. They ought to be that in that position. I just 
want to go to, to Robin um, briefly, who has some questions from our online audience. Hi, I'm Robin Herman. I'm director of the forum. And one of the features of the forum is that we do take online comments and questions. And um, we've had a few come in that uh, that um, may bring the, the question down to the, to the ground, to the people who are um, going to be uh, feeling some of the effects of, of any, any changes. And uh, the questions have to do, um, I'm going to group a couple of them, uh, with equity, basically. Uh, they, there have been comments from Medicare recipients and caregivers um, about the crucial role of Medicare in maintaining the very viability of their households. And um, we also have a question here from uh, Adrian Toder-Williams, who is an academician at the International Academy of Science, Russia section. Uh, and he says, uh, one of the main problems I see is that the pharmaceutical industry, as well as the entire health uh, system absorbs lots of profits. Healthcare is at the foundation of human rights, and all people should benefit. So, how do you see the healthcare system uh, regulated as to respect human rights? And he makes a very good point here, which he says that uh, the instability found in the social contract, that is having to do with health care and, and retirement um, being uh, secured for people, um, if there's instability, it can lead to civil unrest at different levels. And I think maybe we have seen a little bit of that with the Occupy Wall Street um, uh, uh, feelings about, about how society is ordered. I wonder if Don could take that first question about uh, just the viability of households in retirement and its relationship to Medicare? Well, we have to, uh, in my mind, think about this in terms of changes in behavior, uh, because, uh, you know, everyone, in my view, needs to change behavior for our system to be sustainable going forward, and that includes uh, people in the workforce who need to work longer. It includes uh, insurers who need to change their behavior, and some of the Rural Affordable Care Act, I think, helped that but it also includes health providers. And rather than uh, talk about uh, where the risk is and the insurance aspect of this, I think it would be much more productive and much more likely to lead to results if we focused on where we thought the excess spending was taking place. And there I would nominate uh, people with uh, multiple chronic conditions whose care is not very well coordinated. I nominate people toward the end of life where there's a lot of feudal care going on and we're reluctant to uh, embrace a more honest discussion about that. I would, I would point to uh, the role of technology, which sometimes brings in very expensive alternatives with no real increase in effectiveness. And I, I think that uh, we also shouldn't forget, since we're at the Harvard School of Public Health, that there's some very important population uh, health initiatives that could help reduce the cost of health care in terms of the drivers of healthcare, not the medical system, but uh, the reasons that people are uh, encountering accidents and safety problems and chronic illness. So I'd, I'd like to see this discussion move to, a, a um, in my view, a more productive focus on where we think we're spending too much and get away from this insurance redesign, which I don't think is going to uh, happen, number one, and number two, I don't think it would produce uh, the results we're hoping for. Okay. And, oh, I, I just want to come back to one of the questioner's premises that, and link it to something that Bob said at the beginning. And it strikes me as an area where the public is, in fact, right. And that is, we can talk about Medicare changes, we can talk about Medicaid changes, health care <clears throat> savings reductions. And high on the list of what people 
think about is rich people have gotten richer and they ought to contribute something. And I don't, I don't see us making progress here just by saying, let's tackle Medicare and the way we're going to do that is we're going to impose a lot of pain on either doctors or consumers, put them at <laughs> a lot of risk, without coming and saying, oh, by the way, the people who have done extremely well by society are going to have to contribute more. And it just strikes me as both bad policy but as inconceivable socially that, that's, that we're going to completely divorce those two. There was, of course, increases on higher income people that was part of the Affordable Care Act mm -hmm. in that the Medicare tax uh, was increased and the Medicare tax was applied to non-earned income at the higher rate, the 3.8%. So that's not to say this is an open discussion and very much in line what people would like. It is to say, just as we need to remember when we think about what we've done to physicians and hospitals, we have to put it in addition to what we just did. I think when we talk about this discussion, there's very little acknowledgement that they were already expected to contribute more because obviously the people who are going to pay that uh, higher tax and are going to have that higher tax applied to non-earned income are the higher uh, earners in the country. And, and just, just briefly, um, yeah. Bob, that the second part yeah. of the question, or the, the second question about the social contract in healthcare. I mean, it's a it's a massive topic, um, but just wondered. So uh, this is a dilemma. I ask uh, answering anyone from another country, in that the social contract here hasn't been signed by everybody. And so I'm asked this all the time, take me to your social contract. Uh, and for those of you from other countries, uh, there are a significant number of Americans who won, and this is what the election is really going to be about in healthcare, do not want the federal government to directly solve these problems. Uh, I'm sorry, they'll tell you that. Uh, sometimes they'll even scream in a forum at you. I don't want a group of experts solving these problems, telling my doctor in the hospital, something else ha has to be done. Uh, there is a great belief uh, that we should put a floor under low-income Americans and that people upper income should do something more to pay more. But there's not a clear feeling beyond that. Uh, how this is going to work. And that's why the election is so important. And by the way, that's why there is no super uh, committee agreement. People in politics feel being pulled by people who define their own social contract very differently, and they want this election to play out. Each side believes they will do this. But for someone uh, from another country, there's not an agreement that the central government should somehow allocate this and make these decisions. And the people who were elected in yes. 2010, yeah. that very large block of new Republicans in the House, were not elected to do the kind of things right. that we are now talking about. They were elected to reduce the role of government, to reduce spending, Certainly, they weren't elected to play nicely with the president, and they weren't elected to increase taxes. And so we shouldn't be surprised when you get this very strong response from people who were just recently elected to represent a very specific constituency. Uh, let, me just, uh, let me just roll us forward in the future a year. So suppose we kick the doctor fix down the road for a year. Okay. We then have simultaneously uh, I don't know what it would be, roughly 30% reduction in physician fees, and the expiration of the Bush tax cuts, 
which would, particularly on the high income end, more than pay for the reduction in physician fees. So the question is, are you going to have one party, i.e. the Republicans, running around saying, we need to pay for not the 30% reduction in physician fees, and we need to cut your programs, Medicare and Medicaid, to do that. And at the same time we're doing that, let's enact a trillion dollar permanent reduction in tax rates on people who are at the, in the top 1% of the income distribution. Mm -hmm. That would be a fight I'm sure that Republicans would want to avoid. It may be the fight that's being set up, and it's going to be, you know, if it turns out we do that, Lord help us. I think we may have time for just one more question from the audience. So, so you are, you've had your hand up for a while. I'm a physician, actually. I was a Kellogg Fellow here at the Harvard School of Public Health uh, and the Health Policy and Management. Uh, and I'm Canadian trained. And why can't we have a different social contract with the physicians in this country? I think other countries train physicians who are much more economical. I still, re you know, even today, you know, after being in the States, when I read the New England Journal of Medicine, I say, this test is unnecessary, that test is unnecessary, this test. Why can't we train a, a different doctor and then, and we're going to have to pay our doctors less. Mm -hmm. But if we, if we do on that level, that's a kind of another option, isn't, that, isn't, isn't it, in terms of a doctor who behaves differently, has a different social contract? And I think other societies are much more successful at doing that. Well, yeah, short-term fix, for sure. Yeah. Bob? Well, let, let me just take an answer, and again, my apologies to so many friends. A large share of Americans do not want the federal government to determine what every doctor will do in the future. In Canada, there's a very different view. And so this is a real problem. People are being elected to the Congress who do not feel it is their job to redo a medical education. Not that they don't want it to be different. They want more primary care doctors. They don't see that. We have to settle the issue in this country exactly what is the government's role in fixing how doctors behave. Once you do, you can do a lot of things from government. But if you don't believe that government should sit in Washington and decide how doctors are trained, you're, you're you're getting it. And I, I just have to recommend everybody, go listen to an Iowa debate and then decide what it is that we're going to do from Washington. No, it's, it's that, but it's very important because they are articulating alternative visions for what should happen. And after the election, when the smoke is gone, we are going to have one vision or another or some mix. And then I believe they're going to address these issues, but possibly very differently. Well, I think that probably wraps us up. I think that's a very interesting note to end on, Bob. We've got the, the Iowa caucus coming up on January 3. We've got a whole year of electioneering to look out for. And uh, hope I you apologize like <laughs> for that, too. <laughs> so I thank you all for coming today. I thank our online audience. The discussion will continue online. So if you want to like run back to your desks and log on and make some comments, <laughs> feel free to do that. I'd like to thank our, our panelists for coming today. and. Uh, I think it was a very interesting discussion. Thanks all. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.